Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back. You're listening to Weapon of Choice Podcast. My name is Andrew Benda. And I'm Tommy Franklin, and this is episode five of season two. And we are uh, ready to get you another awesome interview with Robin D'Angelo. Yeah, Robin is amazing, and you'll be hearing a lot about her. I'm sure her book, perhaps by now, is already a bestseller, but it definitely will be a bestseller. Her new book is called White Fragility, in stores now, online now. White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. Don't you want to read that book? I've already picked it up, Tommy. I cannot wait to start this. Our conversation with Robin was incredible. She had just gotten done with uh, leading a workshop in St. Paul, and she sat down with us right after that, and we dove straight in. Um, So this is a fantastic interview. Can't wait to hear what y'all think. Yeah, Robin was great. Um, I wish we would have been recording the conversation we had when we drove her back to the airport. But uh, (laughs) nonetheless... We're going to keep it moving, and you're going to love this interview. Robin likes to say that her specialty is white progressives, so dig in, everybody, because it's going to get juicy. Yes, and I'm ready. Get ready. Let's roll it. How old How old were you, if you can think to a time of a specific age, how old were you when you realized you're not normal? Seven, six. And why that age? Um, Because I was with my mother, and we had visited some friend of hers. And they had kids, and we played. And on the way out, um, I was the last one out the door, and I heard one of the kids ask her mother, what's wrong with them? And I stopped, right? Like, I wanted to hear her answer, and she put her finger to her lips and said, shh, they're poor. And it was a moment, I will never forget it, and it was a moment when I became very clear there's something very shameful about us that everyone can see, but no one should name. So I'm Robin D'Angelo. And I'm a former professor of education and currently independent writer, consultant, presenter on issues of racial equity with a particular emphasis on white racial identity and a specialty on white progressives. All right. What is your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting? The word. I think the word is my weapon of choice. Um, to raise consciousness that leads to action, right? So just the word is meaningless, but if the word, and because I I am fluent, um, I have learned how to explain what it means to be white to white people who don't want to know um, in a way that makes it undeniable. And my goal is that once they see that water, they can't unsee it, and they can't go back to inactivity without having to 
own and be accountable that they are choosing to collude with white supremacy. And I actually will say at the end of my workshops that part of what it means to be white is you can leave today and just say, well, that was interesting, and do nothing different, and most of you will make that choice. But if you make that choice, if you're going to make it, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go home and look at yourself in the mirror right in the eyes, and I want you to say, I choose to collude with white supremacy. And then carry on, but do it with honesty. Because inaction in a society in which racial inequality is completely embedded and automatic only supports inequality. So, you know, just to, to maybe give our listeners kind of a foundation, um, you coined the term, or at least from what I've read, I uh, you coined the term white fragility in, in 2011. Could you just, uh, you know, define that for us to start? You know, it's like as soon as I say it, everybody just knows, right? So, <laughs> so, so I think I just put language to a dynamic that I'm, I can only imagine is profoundly frustrating uh, for people of color and as someone whose life is, life's work is about talking to primarily white people, just it's pretty frustrating. And I think it was a moment of frustration, like, oh, this white fragility, I've just kind of had it. Um, and it, it captures, I think, a lot of, a lot of aspects of it. It's kind of um, the fragility, the brittleness, you know, the way we just fracture and erupt at the slightest, you know, <laughs> tap or ping. Um, but I wanted to, to try to capture something that, that is fragile in the sense that we can barely sustain the slightest challenge to our positions or our identities or our entitlement. For a lot of white people, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning and that I could generalize about white people will cause us to erupt, right? Uh, you know, I could share my emails with you and you will know. Um, so, so we're fragile in that we can barely handle any, any moment of racial discomfort. But it is not fragile at all in its impact. It's an incredibly effective means of everyday white racial control, regardless of what's triggering it, hmm. right? Regardless of what's triggering that defensiveness and that umbrage and those tears, it functions as a form of white racial bullying. We as white people make it so miserable for people of color to talk to us about our inevitable and often unaware racist patterns that most of the time they just don't. It's not worth the punishment, right? The, the experience is that it generally doesn't go well that things are going to get worse. You try to call me in on what I just said or did to you, and you risk more punishment from me. You, miss, you, you risk isolation, me withdrawing from the relationship, me bursting into tears so that you now are the transgressor and I am the victim, right? And all of those moves basically keep people of color in their place and me in my place. Hmm. And in that, I, I often say I'm not the 1%. I've never even been a manager, but I can control the people of color in my orbit through my white fragility so that you really don't question my position, my entitlement, my patterns, my worldview. Um, and I get to claim you as my diversity cover, right? Because I'm definitely going to let everybody know that you're my friend. Um, but that is as long as you keep me comfortable. 
right? You're going to get to work in this workplace. You're going to get to be here with us if you keep us comfortable so that, again, we can claim you. But, but challenge me, challenge us. You might get away with it once. You probably won't get away with it twice. You will become a problem that needs to be ejected. Um, and so, yeah, white fragility is really, really powerful. It's like weaponized defensiveness. And I see it as the sociology of dominance. I see it as how we maintain um, the racial hierarchy and our positions within it. While still telling ourselves that we're good people, right? Good. We're, well, we're, I think one of the key kind of pillars yeah. Yeah. Uh, of white fragility is what I call the good-bad binary. So... Racism and white supremacy, they kind of use them interchangeably. Um, it's a highly adaptive system. Mm -hmm. And um, it can adapt to changes and challenges, and it does. And I think one of the most brilliant adaptations it made post-civil rights was to reduce a racist to an incredibly simple formula, always an individual, not a system, who consciously does not like people based on race, must be conscious, and intentionally seeks to hurt them must be intentional. And by that definition, virtually no white person is racist. And virtually no, no moment of anything is racist. And by that definition, if I suggest that you are indeed racist, you're going to hear that I have just questioned your moral character. Mm -hmm. uh, and now you're going to need to defend your moral character. And you will. Let me, let me own this. Oh, I will defend my moral character. Mm -hmm. And how will I defend it? By every way to say that was not racism. It could not have been racism because I'm not racist. Um, I think that definition, uh, that simplistic, only individual mean people who intend to hurt people on, by race could ever be racist, um, is the root of virtually all white defensiveness. Have you all noticed any white defensiveness on the topic of racism? Just wondering. Getting being facetious. <laughs> and it just functions so beautifully to make it impossible to talk to us about about the inevitable yeah. absorption of a racist worldview. So so let me like redirect this and be very direct. As a result of being raised in a society as a white person in a society in which white supremacy is the bedrock and the foundation and infused across all systems. As a result of being raised in this culture, I have a racist worldview. I have deep racist biases. I have racist patterns. And I have an investment in this system because it serves me and it's comfortable. And I also have investment in not seeing any of that. This is why white people cannot be trusted to assess whether or not we're woke or not. Hmm. I am the least qualified to determine whether I'm woke or not. And I'm quite invested in not seeing where I'm not woke. Um, and so as it, I have these... All of this, I didn't choose it. Um, actually, I want to be careful there. I didn't choose to be conditioned into it. I, I do think that uh, at this point, um, it's a kind of willful not knowing. I don't think white people are racially innocent in any way, and I don't want to grant any innocence to white people. I think um, we work really hard to, ref to not see this. Um, but again, I, I got set up in it, and so I just don't struggle with guilt or shame. Um, I am responsible for my role within white supremacy. I do play a role. Nothing could and nothing did exempt me from my role in white supremacy. So what's on me is to figure out what's my particular role, what does it look like in my life, but not exempt myself from having a role because I'm a nice person mm -hmm. who would never intend to hurt anybody across race. Does, do, do you... 
do most people who struggle with white guilt and shame make a misstep of um, attacking that guilt and shame by their external actions versus their internal um, reflection and action? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I want to call bullshit on white shame. Um, whenever there is a very quick move to any particular narrative by white people, it's suspect. And you will notice how quickly white people will go to shame or guilt when you bring up race, right? And suddenly we just feel so bad and this feels so terrible. No, I have started asking white people in my workshops, pair up, and I want you to share with your partner on a daily basis, how often do you feel racial shame? Okay, let's see. The other day on my way into Whole Foods, I had to step over a black man who was sleeping in the gutter and I felt a moment of shame. But the moment I got into Whole Foods, I got very excited about the new organic <laughs> cherries that were in. Yeah, yeah. Come on, on a daily basis, I do not feel racial shame. I feel racial shame in, in the rare moment. I'm gentrifying a neighborhood and I got to watch the black family two doors down move out. I'll feel a little rush of shame. Um, it's, it's so minor. Oh, please. Yeah. And, and other than that, it's those movers like, show up. But it's a powerful word to put behind it, right? To right. label it because shame. It's it's precious. About, yeah. Because it's precious. Because as soon as I invoke shame, oh, no one should feel shame. And so I become a victim again and I have an excuse for not engaging. Right. And so, you know, it's just come on, 2% of the time even. So why do we go there so quickly? And I'll just offer your listeners that. Just think really deeply. Uh, and how does it function for you? What, what does that narrative do for you? What does it excuse you from or uh, exempt you from or allow you to do? What is it? What kind of cultural capital do you get when you invoke shame? Because you wouldn't invoke it if you weren't getting cultural capital from it. I'm sorry. That's just the way we work. Mm. Um, and since you don't struggle, or for yourself, you never really struggle with the guilt and shame piece. But when peeling back all the layers over the years and years and years, what have you personally struggled with? Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say I, I've never struggled with it, but I, because I have a completely different paradigm today. Like, I, I, I do not now, see yeah. racism as individual acts of meanness. So that's the first thing. I, um I, I see it as a system into which I was conditioned. And, and I actually find it incredibly rewarding for sure, but intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically stimulating to try to figure out mm -hmm. how am I colluding and to stop colluding. I recently read a quote, forgive me for not being able to attribute to the person, but it was something to the effect of privilege is not knowing how you're hurting people and refusing to find out, right? Like, What's the worst fear of a white progressive? Oh, my God, I might say or do something racist. Don't you dare tell me I just said or did something racist. Mm. Like this is, it's just such a tight setup. So, but not, let me not dodge you. What I think you were asking me is what do I maybe feel guilt or shame about? Not even that, just yeah. this work you do is all, always connected to you personally since your upbringing. Yeah. Which you could, you know, talk more about all the way down to where exactly you grew up, but struggled to I mean as you've gotten through this and had that paradigm of it's not individual it's systematic but where have where have the struggles been for you because it's a constant the peeling back the layers is a yeah. constant and you lean into it which is a beautiful thing and I'm glad listeners get to hear your story for that reason among other things 
But have you had any, like, you have a family, you have perhaps siblings, and there's pushback, inherent pushback from all of your different worlds. Yeah. Um, when, so, so there's a couple of reasons why I think overall I don't struggle with it. And one of them is because I, I don't see it as something that I consciously chose at an early age. Now, of course, I feel responsible again. And if my professed values are aligned with my action, then I feel in my integrity. So when I go to bed at night, I, I ask myself, were, were your actions aligned with what you profess to value? Um, and by the way, niceness to people of color is not an alignment. Niceness is not anti-racist, right? Um, niceness, actually, I think the system of white supremacy depends on white people just being really nice and carrying on and do nothing different. Because niceness is not courageous in any way. It's not going to get racism on the table. I ain't going to keep it on the table and everybody wants it off the table, right? Mm. It takes strategy and intentions. Um, but when I'm not, when I can't answer that question with, yes, I'm in, I was in my integrity, um, then I do feel guilt. Probably shame's a bit deep. I think I feel, I feel guilt and I feel a little sheepish, like I don't want the people that I respect to know that I didn't speak up today. You know, what was your journey to becoming a lecturer and writer? And also, what was your journey for this newest book? Or what was the book's journey? I was your classic, oblivious, white progressive. Hmm. Okay? And I applied for a job as a diversity trainer. And when I looked at the job description, I just thought, okay, one, what a cool job. Two, of course I'm qualified to be a diversity trainer. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> How could I be racist? I'm a vegetarian. That's the best one I've ever heard. And now, of course, this was the 90s. I would need to be vegan today. <laughs> but in the 90s, you know, be a vegetarian was really alternative. And, and I'm being a little facetious, but I think on some level I have that consciousness that it's about open-mindedness and, and alternativeness. And so I applied for the job. Um, and because everybody in the position to determine my qualifications is also a really uh, oblivious white progressive, I got the job. Right. I mean, sometimes I just, like, there are many, many things I wonder that, that people of color don't walk through the world expressing rage every moment. I don't know how you manage that, right? That, that's an incredible feat of self-control. But, but just to, the mediocrity that white people get away with in the job market must be a bit um, <laughs> disconcerting, right? I took the last two days off of work Yeah, for that yeah. reason. Okay. <laughs> so I got this job and, you know, t it was a parallel process. One was, it was this huge mandated diversity training for government workers, right? And... Um, there were like 5,000 people that had to go through it, so they needed a huge group of diversity trainers, and they hired 40 of us, and, and they put it as us in interracial teams. But I had to go through a five-day train the trainer. And this was this, you know, 40 people, multiracial, in a room for five days, and very quickly emerged that the white people that got hired didn't know what the hell we were doing. Mm -hmm. And we got into it day one, as soon as we turned to the people of color and said, okay, this is the part where you teach us about racism. And their response was, oh, hell no. Mm. You know, mm. and again, part of being white is to have no hesitation to, sh to admit that I don't know anything about, you know, that I don't know what I'm doing. Not that, 
um, I think we actually know a lot more about racism than we admit to, but um, to feel okay to say that I don't know my job qualifications um, or requirements. And so for the first time in my life, one, I was working side by side with people of color who were consistently challenging my, the way I saw the world. And, and part of being white is I, I was in my 30s, I was a college graduate, and I was a parent. And I had never had my racial worldview challenged. Mm. Uh, and never in any consistent way by people of color, because that's part of what it means to be white. Because I could be certified as highly educated and not have one clue uh, or ability to engage with any criticality in conversations about race. I don't think you should actually be able to be certified as educated if you cannot engage with complexity around race, but that's not the world we live in. Um, so that, and then going out into the workplace, remember I said I thought it was gonna be really fun and cool and who doesn't love this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Oh, the hostility was off the charts from almost 100% white employed people bitterly complaining that they even had to come. about affirmative action yeah. not to mention that they even had to come yeah. and it, it they were so mean and this it was kind of this two-piece process of of having people of color hold me accountable um having to bear witness part of being white is not to have to bear witness to the pain of racism on people of color and not to have to bear witness to the pain my racism causes people of color. But that, that, they weren't having that. I, I, I was bearing witness. I was getting called in. Um, and then I was watching these white people just be such assholes. And I'm just going to say this. Man, we are pissy on this topic. White people are so pissy when the topic is race. But we're so ignorant, and but so arrogant, right? Just mm -hmm. like all of this. Mm -hmm. So the, the sociologist in me kind of started putting it all together. How do we pull this off? Um, and then I got better and better at articulating how we pull this off. And at the end of those five, it took us five years to get everybody through that training. <laughs> there were only two trainers left, and I was the only white one. I was the last white one standing. <laughs> and I just thought, damn, what? What an exceptional opportunity I just had. I want to apply this at a larger level, so I went on to get a doctorate. It's, so I see myself as someone who went from practice to theory, not theory to practice. Mm -hmm. What has been your experience that when you came back, um, either finding peers or mentorship, or you know, was it like you also were seeing? I guess came back to uh, higher ed, like the the institution of higher ed. I guess that's what I'm asking about is how also do you see this play out even with people that are that have PhDs that are you know other lecturers that you know. Presumably, you say these are the most educated people, and we're failing miserably. You can be seen as qualified to lead a major or minor organization or institution in this country with virtually no ability to engage with any complexity whatsoever on issues of race. And you can graduate from virtually any program. You can graduate with a degree in law without ever having discussed racism. Oh. You can graduate with a degree in teacher education without ever discussing racism and a social work. And mm -hmm. I could go on and right. on. And if you're in a progressive program, you'll have one required course. Yep. 
your professors will have fought 10 years against their white colleagues to get you that course. They'll still be fighting to keep the course because we don't really need a special course. We're all for social justice here. And that doesn't mean you'll be talking about racism in that one required course. If you're in teacher education, you might be just talking about how to introduce ethnic authors in February. Okay. So, um, no, faculty are just grown-up students, right? In other words, um, most faculty cannot engage with criticality about race themselves. Mm -hmm. And they believe if they're for social justice and who isn't, that they automatically mm -hmm. do social justice, that it's integrated into their curriculum. It's not. Mm -hmm. um, they don't address it. They have anxiety about it. They stick it at the end if they're gonna do it at all. When it comes, which means they'll never get to it. When it comes up in class, they go silent, right? right? It, it doesn't come from being nice people, right? This is like, it takes a very specific skill set that we don't have naturally, right? right that we, right. and, and um, so it was distressing yeah. to go to grad school. I, the racism in academia is off the charts. I've never seen whiteness so fiercely protected as it is in academia. If you want to get ahead in academia, do not bring up racism. Mm. If you want to be seen as a team, team player, don't, don't bring up racism. So yeah, it's been hard. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I resigned. I'm not in academia anymore. Um, I just feel like I could be much more effective. Um, it, it's interesting because in my own department, I, I was not particularly popular. Um, but coming as an outsider into other departments, I mean, I, I go all over the country and work with faculty. Yeah. And, and they can hear it from me when I don't know their own baggage. Do you know what I mean? Like, as an, well, one, I'm white. So let's be really honest and clear that, that I am heard more openly than the than the colleagues of color have been saying this, this forever. Right. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the master's tools dilemmas, right? That even as I seek to use my position to to break with whiteness, I'm centering whiteness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the way I I reconcile that is it stays centered now by being unmarked and unnamed. Right. It, it's the backdrop. It's the norm through which everyone else is measured, but never acknowledged. Yeah. Right. So to to lay it bare, to shine the light on it is to decenter it in a way. It, you kind of have to center it differently. Mm -hmm. And it's a both end. I think, you know, the master's tools again. How do, how do you dismantle the master's house when you only have the master's tools? This is Audre Lorde's yeah. beautiful quote. So um, I'm very clear that as a white person standing up with authority on this topic, I am reinforcing every expert and voice and teacher and role model that most everybody ever had. And by God, I'm going to not use this position in that way to me is to really be white. Mm. So I don't think we can get a positive white identity. I don't think there's any such thing because white doesn't exist outside of white supremacy. But I try to be a little less white so so how do you be a little less white? Be a little less of an asshole on race, right? Be a little less defensive. Be a little less arrogant. Be a little less certain. Have some more humility. Mm. Listen, right? Bear witness, right? That Those are how you be a little less yeah. white. Break silence. Break with white solidarity. I, I read a couple of other interviews you've done, and you'd kind of labeled it as like, 
white people coming to terms with their own denial about uh, how their privilege has manifested or how their fragility show, has like shown through. Um, how did you, what was your journey coming to terms with your own denial? Um, you know, before that, that experience of that training, you know, what was your per- perception? Of I'm your wondering if I, if I could have without the brilliant and patient mentorship of mm. people of color. I don't believe I could without that. Um, I don't think we can get there on our own. Um, I am sorry for the pain I caused those mentors, but I also know they saw something in me that they hung in there with me. Mm. And probably they saw me respond to their feedback in a way that said it was getting in, Mm -hmm. right? And, And I think in my case, it has helped me greatly to draw from two key places where I experience oppression. Yeah. Uh, sexism, patriarchy, and classism, right? And to not use them to exempt myself, because I I imagine, you know, many white people will use our experiences of oppression to exempt ourselves. And I am not saying that white people don't have face barriers or struggle, but we don't face that barrier, and that is a huge one. Mm -hmm. And not facing that barrier, racism, really helps us navigate the barriers that we do face, right? So so I could draw from that experience. When I couldn't figure out, so I'm getting some feedback from a person of color, and I'm, and I'm being honest with you. I, like, for example, I don't get it. I don't know why they're saying that. Then I just imagine a man is saying to me mm. what I'm thinking of saying to the, oh, got it. Mm. Okay? So I just, you know, when white people say, well, I don't feel safe talking about racism oh we need to build trust i imagine being in a room filled with men white men and the topic is rape culture mm-hmm. and there's one woman in the room and they're all talking about how they need to build trust and feel safe before they can talk about rape culture honestly i'd be just like fuck you mm-hmm. right okay now that you you told me that i could go there but now i'm worried about going there that strong seriously yeah. when you don't feel safe like can do you get how deeply that trivializes? You are perfectly safe as a man talking about rape culture, right? Yeah. Right, and and how profoundly that trivializes what it would feel like for me to be in that room, and and so I can get that so clearly. Then all I have to do is go, oh, that's what it's like when white people insist that we need to feel safe in conversations about race, mm. right? So my response is just, what does it mean to need to feel safe? from a position of social, historical, institutional, Dominant. cultural power yeah. and privilege. <laughs> yeah. Like, what does that even mean? You, we are safe. What, what, we, what we aren't is comfortable. But that doesn't have the preciousness. As soon as I invoke safety, oh, well, everyone should feel safe. And now, but and take now you need to take care of me. But if I said I don't feel comfortable, I, I can't get away with that as much. So, so I will move to safety, hmm. right? Um, but what question did you ask me that triggered that whole response about oh, drawing from one form of oppression to be? Or, yeah, your own denial. Like, what was your own journey with your own yeah, denial about so it? It, it isn't as, as if I didn't resist at times, but um, pretty quickly learned to, um, in the moment, take that defensiveness I felt in the face of the feedback. Take it, because look, my commitment is I don't want to be perpetrating racism. And I'm clear that I do. So even if I'm not getting how I do, 
right now, and even if I'm not even seeing what you just told me, I'm going to at least grant there's probably something here. So I'm going to say right. thank yeah. you. Um, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right now. Um, but so let me let me let me sit with this. I will come back. Let me sit with this. Right. Actually, I'd be saying that to you, not to you. <laughs> right. And then I would go and find another white friend who has a, an analysis. Any white person can find 50 people on a dime to go into agreement that the feedback that you got from a person of color was oversensitive. Don't go find those people. They're everywhere. Go find someone who has an analysis who will, who you could cry with, right? That's the person to cry with and vent and feel defensive and then put your heads together and try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I had a woman, Robin Bowler. Mm -hmm. She was Jewish. And she would draw from anti-Semitism, but she was also very clear she was white. And I'd go, oh, my God, Robin, I just got this feedback. Help me. And we would just, like, try to figure it out. And she'd come to me. And then we'd get clear. And then I would go back. And I would say, okay, here's how I understand my racism was manifesting. This mm -hmm. is what I understand from your feedback. Did I get that right? When you show up to these trainings and, and, and talks, like, how do you, as you're engaging them, from the beginning, test the waters to see like where people are at. You know how we're okay, gonna be really honest with you at the risk of making white people very mad. I don't care where they're at uh -huh. uh, in one way, like other, other than the degree that I need them to move. Mm. Um, and, and I've been doing this long enough that whatever range is in the room is a range I'm familiar with. Right. And, and so like racism is racism and white patterns are white patterns. Um, and so there's a couple of just strategies I use. And one of them is I don't open the floor for questions or comments until I'm done, right? Because I'm not going to fight my way through it. And I, and I mm. tell people, if I do a good job of this, you will not be comfortable. And, um, the, and one of the skills we need to build as white people is holding the discomfort and not reacting from it. And so... Mm -hmm. When you have those feelings, sit with them, right? If I take questions and comments, those hands are going to pop up and pop up and challenge, and I'm not going to get through it. And, you know, listen, without years of intentional, sustained study, struggle, and focus on this topic, white people's opinions on racism is necessarily ignorant and uninformed. And I'm confident saying that. I don't have to know you. I don't have to know that you took a trip to Costa Rica. I don't have to know that you have multiracial nieces and nephews. I don't have to know that you were in um, the Peace Corps. Yeah. That is not sustained study and struggle and focus, right? Mm. Nothing in this society gives white people the information we need to have any kind of complex understanding of racism, right? We just talked about it. You can get through grad school without ever talking about it. Right. In fact, you are punished by trying to talk with any depth about it. At right? many levels, right, yeah. And so a lot of people like, well, let's just affirm what everybody's opinion and experience is. No, some people's opinions are informed and some are not. And I'm not here to validate uninformed opinions. If you wanna insist that you were taught to treat everyone the same, you're uninformed. Just, because I'm, that's not possible. I'm curious, is it, you know, you, some are informed, some are, is it, some you said some are informed and some opinions are clearly not. But would you say it's a some some or a some most? Uh, well, I would say um, white people's opinion. 
I've never met a white person who didn't have an opinion on racism. Yeah. Have you? No. Nope. No. Nope. We all got opinions. You can't grow up in this culture and not develop an opinion. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make it informed. Right, because I'm constantly thinking of the years and years yes. you've been putting this work in. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've, um, well, I, I have to be really careful there because, see, racism is very wily for white people. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to um, always check my complacency and, and my humility. And I'm confident to say for 20 years I've worked really, really hard. And it's not just studying from a book, right? It's mistake making and repair and relationship building and getting called in and getting in there every day, and mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I, I feel much more informed than the average white person. But if you open that the door, they will position their opinions as equal to yours. And well, they'll certainly <laughs> do it to me and you know they'll do it to you, mm-hmm. right? Um, in fact, I think apparently white people feel more qualified than you are uh, about whether something is racist or not. Like, we'll be the determiner of whether or not that was racist, right? I mean, I'm sure you've had many white people basically tell you, no, you're wrong, that wasn't racism, yeah. right? Um, so when I walk into a room, I basically hold a really tight grip on it yeah. until I've laid down some stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and that reminded me, because I wrote it down here, the other thing I wanted to say around safety mm. is we often hear this narrative of, like, we need to build trust in the group before we can talk about racism. And you'll hear this a lot from white people. And I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out, what is it that you need to trust? I'm talking about white people in particular. What do you need to trust will or won't happen? What are you talking about? And you know what it comes down to? Seriously, I need to trust that you won't think I'm racist. When I say racist. Before I can, well, when I say racist things, but before I can even begin to work on my racism, I need to know that you won't think I'm racist. I mean, there's other really dumb things like I don't want to be judged. Good luck with that. Like, that's not possible. You need to know that I'm a good person before. All of it. And and so I just say, oh, no, let me just, basically the dance is up, right? I start from the premise that that all white people are racist, right? So, so. None of that carefulness, mm-hmm. none of the, the uh, evidence you want to give me, that, none of that is convincing to me. All white people are socialized into white supremacy. And so, you know, I start there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want to make sure that I don't think you're racist, well, let me just relieve you of that. I think you're racist. Okay. If you are white, I want to be really clear. When I use that term, I'm talking, everybody has racial bias. When your group's collective bias is backed by legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed. And I reserve the term racism to talk about white people's bias, okay? Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how liberating it is to start from that premise. And maybe this gets back a little bit to the guilt thing. Once you just like start from the premise, of course I have internalized all of this. Then you can stop defending, deflecting, hoping nobody will notice. And, and start enthusiastically mm-hmm. trying to figure out, okay, so what does it look like in my life? How is it coming out? I don't want to be doing that. And I don't know how I'm doing that. So I, I am excited and eager to find out. And if you're going to take the risk, let me just ask you, Tommy, how often have you attempted to give white people feedback on our inevitable and often unaware racist patterns and had that go well for you? <sighs> Only if I have the energy to sustain it for more than five minutes because of the bullshit. Yeah, yeah, right. Rarely, defensiveness, rarely. you know. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so, 
if you are willing to take that, it's an incredible moment of trust across a deep history of harm, mm. right? It is an incredible risk for you to give me that feedback because generally you're, you, it goes worse, right? It could go worse. Um, and so if you, if you see something, actually it's like a compliment. You mm -hmm. saw something in me that said, maybe I can go here with her. Um, and you're willing to help me identify my patterns. So, so it's, just, it's just when you, you change the paradigm, you change it all. Mm. You cannot get there from the current paradigm that says only mean people who intend to hurt could be racist. You can't get there from there. I cannot wait for that world where nine out of ten white people you call racist take it as a compliment. <laughs> We've gotten somewhere. There. Do you know what I mean by a compliment yeah. in the yeah, sense yeah, of in like, that sense, right. uh, thank you for helping me exactly. see that. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, expending the energy that normally could, could potentially trigger or traumatize you. And thank you for trusting me in that engagement. Like that is same, go, same goes for like our, our cishet male sexism, yeah. Yeah. like starting at that baseline. Yeah. My friend always tells me you're, you're going to be just fine if you start at, as a man, as a straight man, that you ain't shit. You start there. It's kind of kind of to your point. Yeah. Um, and even if I don't understand how that was racist, right? So we, this is what white people usually do. No, no, no. You misunderstood, right? We, we, you know, you no, no, no. Let me let me explain again what I really meant. And what, what we don't get is that, yeah, maybe you understand perfectly what I really meant. What I don't understand is how what I really meant is racist, mm -hmm. right? It's like that, that just accepting that given my socialization, it's more likely that I don't understand, mm -hmm. not that you don't, mm -hmm. right? Um, so again, it's that, it's that humility. And I just want to make that point because I don't have to see it or understand it for it to be real and true and have a racist impact. And, and it's the impact that matters, not the intentions. Mm -hmm. Can I, I want to say something about that cishet male, because I do think that race complicates that in particular for black men. Yeah, oh my God, we have to. Yes. We have to like. And there's a way when you're the least yeah. privileged of all yeah. peoples. I want, I want to be careful about how I'm saying that, but maybe in your own home or community or family, you could be running sexism and patriarchy, and I'm sure it happens. When you walk down the street, you're the most vulnerable as a black man. And there's just, I just want to hold that and acknowledge it. And that doesn't mean I don't want you to work on whatever sexism you have, but I don't want to say it's equal to It makes it hard. Andrew's. Yes. Yeah. It makes it that hard. it's equal to Andrew's sexism or that it, that it manifests in the same way. No, it, it makes it hard. It, it makes it hard. It makes it really hard. Because he won't get thrown to the ground and handcuffed, but you would, right? Like there's a kind of almost seen as less powerful because you're a black man. Yeah, it's tough to walk down the street and be X amount of people passing you up, fear you, while you're at the same time having... So I'm having yeah. to... I'm, I'm having to like be conscious of how someone might fear me as a black man, but also be thinking about who's... Who should I be fearful of when I turn my shoulder to the left versus to the right? And it's tough. Yeah. But I mean, like, it just, I just love your point about that. Like, too enthusiastically lean into 
the discomfort. Yeah, it's not comfortable, willing right? Willing to, but you know. I, yeah. You know, to the, again, to the degree that I can articulate what I articulate, to the degree that I can genuinely say to you that there are people of color in my life who think I have their back and who trust me. Um, and I, I couldn't get there without having made so many mistakes and had to just sit and face those mistakes and hold it and build my capacity to, to bear it. Um, and you don't get there through carefulness. That's, that's inauthentic, right? Mm. And there's a difference between careful and thoughtful. White people need to be really thoughtful about what we're saying and doing, but that carefulness that keeps us rigid and inauthentic is not helpful. Mm -hmm. You know how white people say, well, I'm not gonna say anything in case I say the wrong thing. How are you gonna find out it's the wrong thing? I mean, that doesn't mean just blurt it out, but that kind of, I'm just gonna default to silence and carefulness is means I'm also not gonna show myself or take risks. Your mentors just, that was a tremendous experience having those mentors. Oh my God. And they also, man, I'm conflict avoidant. So Minnesota nice, Seattle nice, uh -huh. okay? And we'd be doing these trainings and there'd be some angry white guy. And you think I'm not intimidated by angry white men? I am. And he'd be giving us a hard time and those facilitators of color would pull me, usually black women, call, pull me aside and go, Robin, you need to take him out and you need to talk to him. And I'd be like, oh my God, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> but oh my God, these black women just told me to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put on my white hat. I'm going to try to take off my gender hat right now. Okay. Um, and and uh, let me just explain. I can never take off my gender hat, but I think about it in terms of saliency and that different identities become more or less salient in different contexts, right? In different moments. And I'm gonna kind of bring to the fore white, and I'm gonna go talk to him, white person to white person. And that really built up my ability to um, withstand conflict. And I, and, and I got stronger by doing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so all of these things were happening to, to kind of shape me and change me in those early years. A lot of seems like, you know, you know, revelations or perhaps what isn't revealed. I don't say so much about who we are. And, you know, since if you think about your work since just November 2016, what has been profoundly revealed to you? Oh, oh my gosh. Are you talking about the election? Yeah, you know. You figured it out, right? Time range. Yeah, I you know, because um, a lot of people who don't reveal things, what they're not revealing is actually who they are. Yeah. What got reinforced is, you know, we're taught that to see history as a as progress, as an arc that goes up and up and we get more modern and more yeah. progress and more egalitarian. And I, and I think it's really clear that it's more like cyclical. And Ibram Kende, who wrote Stamped from the Beginning, uh, he's an uh, African-American um, Studies scholar, won the National Book Award. Um, he talks about it as always, always in competition, these kind of circuits of power. Um, and, and there'll be some advancement and then some pushback and then some advancement. And so I think that what we're seeing now is, is kind of the pushback against whatever advancement that we might have seen. So, so I'm also thinking of Carol Anderson's white rage, 
where she said, every moment of black achievement has been met by white rage and white outrage and basically uppityness. So I think where we're at right now is, is the outrage at eight years of the uppityness of a black man above us. Um, and I think what I'm stunned by is it's not very far below the surface um, and that we really will vote against our own interests, be willing to virtually annihilate the human race rather than allow black people to look us in the eye as equals. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at uh, Colin Kaepernick, right? Mm -hmm. Resma talks about it only recently that black people have dominion over their own bodies. Yeah. And, and I just think about that. Not only um, were there consequences to him just kneeling with respect and, and solemnness. And it was a veteran that gave him the advice to yeah. kneel. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, That's right. right. Oh. I know. And then some congressman who says in Korea they'd shoot you in the head. In other words, we'd like to execute you for that uppityness but well but we can't and count yourself lucky we can't unless we pull you over i mean you're on the field you're probably safe uh you know what i mean but the protest has never had any the protest has never had anything to do with the military that was a total deflection um if if i can jump back really quick i wanted to talk more those lectures and your experiences um because how, how do you shift the focus? And, and I kind of want to talk about white liberals here, um, which, I, which is a group that I, you know, I, I uh, am a part of. I feel like the conversations, and I'm wondering how you see this in your, your talks and your lectures, um, the conversation seems to always be about other white people, yeah. n not about, you know, me. Or, you know, it's like, well, the other white people that aren't with us are doing this. And... How, do you see that in your lectures? How does that play out? And how do you get this focus to shift to say, this is about the racism that I'm still perpetuating? Yeah. Um, I know all the moves and um, mm -hmm. I anticipate all the moves. And so th there's various strategies. One, of course, and, I, and I'm hoping that you're noticing it. I hope I'm modeling it in this interview is that I point the finger inward mm -hmm. as well as outward. And that gives a little space for white people to identify and say, well, yeah, I have that too, and she's admitting that. So um, that, that's one thing that, that helps. But I just name it. Mm. Um, I just say, you know, these are the patterns. This is, uh, even when I start and I say, kind of jokingly, white progressives are my specialty, and then I say, and here's a white progressive. And I say, I say the little joke about Costa Rica and the multiracial grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I say a white progressive is anybody sitting here right now thinking about who they wish was here. Right? <laughs> um, you're sitting here that. right now thinking, oh, I wish my brother-in-law was here. Right. You right. are a white progressive yeah. because you're thinking that it's not you. I do it when I get um, the top two questions mm -hmm. at the end, which is one, how do I tell so-and-so about their racism without triggering their white fragility? And my response to that question is, well, how would I tell you about yours? And I just look at them and I just pause. And then I say, because your question presumes it isn't going to be you, right? right. The other question right. I get is, okay, okay, what do I do? And my response to that is, well, what about your life has allowed you to be a full functioning professional adult and not know what to do about racism? 
Why in 2018 is that your question? Mm. How have you managed not to know? Right? And that's, it's a challenging question. I mean, I'm making a point here because I don't like that question. I, I, don't, I think it's a bullshit question. Take the freaking initiative and go look it up, yeah. right? Mm. I mean, if I, if I hand you the answer, you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's also a sincere question, right? Sit down and take out a piece of paper and write down, well, how, how, why don't you know? Well, you weren't educated? Okay, there's step one. You don't have people calling your life? Well, there's step two. You don't talk about race? Step three. You don't really care? Mm. Write it down. Can you live with it? If you can't, there's step four, right? Um, the other thing is I always design my questions um, so that they're not um, opinion questions. They're try it on questions. So here's one. After I do all the narratives, though, all the evidence white people give for why we're not racist and how ridiculous it is, then I have them turn to the person next to you and answer this question. And I say, your answer must begin with I. How do you credential yourself in conversations about race? What moves do you make to signal to to people of color that you're not racist? All white people make these moves. And then I add, and if I told you that people of color recognize it when we're making those moves, they know when we're trying to signal that we're not racist, how do you think it impacts the conversation? And then I'll ask the people call in the room, what moves do you notice white people making to try to let you know? Mm-hmm. And what happens for you in the moment that you notice us making those moves? So I, so I will ask questions that kind of push them. And I can't control a room of 200, so there may be a mm-hmm. couple people in there who go off into what their brother-in-law does. Mm-hmm. But mostly, I just really, I, I try to block all the exit points by at least naming <laughs> the exit point. So yeah. right, if right. you do it, the person you're talking to notices Notice you're doing it because yeah. I named it. So, you know, what do you see people considering before saying, all right, I'm going 100% into Robin's material? Um, and so are you asking me in the sense of like what I would offer them as, as like advice to help them? Or are you want me to name the ways that the Maybe consideration functions to have us or consideration inactive. perhaps even instead of consideration excuses not to take the dive. Okay, there you go. You know. um, I am sometimes stunned at how powerful the fear of conflict is for white people that for just one moment that you might have a cringe of discomfort that will be so powerful for me that I will let you run racism at Tommy and stay silent. I'll see the racism you ran, I'll see his pain. Um, but I don't want you to have just a moment of discomfort. And I don't want to have a moment of discomfort by triggering your discomfort. And I will privilege that over your pain, Tommy. It, it's ama- I've watched it a million times. I've probably done it myself. And it, it's amazing how powerful. It, just one moment of you might not like me or you might be mad at me or you might feel bad is stronger than um, my caring about the impact of racism on people of color. So, so even just putting it like that makes it harder for me to do it, mm-hmm. right? That's one of my hopes is, is that when I, when I say, look at yourself in the mirror and say, I choose to clue with white supremacy, that's hard to do. And, and I'm hoping that you can't do it, right? You can't look at yourself and say, I choose to do that. And so, dang it, I've got I've to break with this. Um, so, the excuses are going to be fear of conflict. Oh, the one that I think is, I just definitely want to call bullshit on is, I might lose my job. You know, 
if white people lost their jobs over every little thing they said that was racist, people of color would finally have access to all the jobs they've ever been overqualified for. Do you ever wonder what the hell does it take to lose your job over something you've said that's racist? Or right, if I admit that I'm racist or if I talk about this, I'll lose my job and I, I, like, I don't buy that at all. My supervisor's in the room, right? And, and they have more power over me and so if I, if I admit any of this or I grapple with this, I, I also, it's like at some point, who are you going to be in the world, right? Yep, your supervisor's in the room. That's right. And I suppose they could retaliate. And so go ahead, look at yourself in the mirror and say, I chose to collude with white supremacy because I didn't want my supervisor to write me up, even though odds are quite high. Mm -hmm. She ain't going to write me up, mm -hmm. right? Um, other excuses. Well, I don't know anything about this. You know, I grew up in a really sheltered Okay, so this is the white racial innocence narrative, which I also call bullshit on. We are not racially innocent. And, and I would argue that you grew up in a, on a farm way out in the middle of nowhere. You were not sheltered from racism. You actually probably have more racism because you were left to rely on very problematic representations for your understanding of people of color not from a wide variety of authentic, sustained cross-racial relationships. So all of this stuff about us not knowing or, be, you know, look, yes, we're taught to be oblivious and we aren't given good information. That's true. But we do have some expertise on how we got taught to be oblivious, right? Mm -hmm. If we just turn the lens inward, we've got a lot of material to draw from. You know, the reason I can articulate how much how whiteness manifests for white people is not just because I try to talk to them every day about it, but because I have it within myself. You know, if white people want to know how to get some information on white fragility, just go and bring up racism with other white people. And don't back off after the first round of meaningless, vapid platitudes. Stay with it and keep pushing. Asking, just ask questions and watch us unravel. Mm-hmm. Right. And you'll just get better and better kind of, I think I can speak to it because I can see how it all works. I actually have this image I use in my presentations of a dock that looks like it's floating on the water. Yeah. And that's all the surface bullshit. You know, I have friends of color. I was in Costa Rica. I yeah. treat everybody the same. I'm on the equity team at my workplace. And then it looks like it's floating on the water, but it's not. It's actually sitting on a structure that's submerged underneath that props it up. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, if you want to get under there and figure out what that structure is, and mm -hmm. that's what I try to make visible. When, people, when, when you're successful or going around the country, and a lot of these people you encounter, might, you might not have relationships with, continuous relationships with, um, and then you decide you want to write this book, when did you start writing White Fragility? The book? When did you start writing that yeah, book? Yeah, the book, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the article was so popular, I thought right. I got to turn this into a book. And so around, Honestly, oh. it probably took about three months. I write fast. Okay, well, when did you begin? Like, what, oh, what um, time, what year did you begin writing? Oh, uh, uh, 2017. Okay, so last year you started writing the book. But the article spurred on success in the public eye of yes. the readers who witnessed some of your work. And you probably get feedback in a positive way from people who admire your work. Yep. And they just, probably a lot of people just see you as, oh, that person's very successful. I just want to tell them how much I love them. Yeah. Um, but now here you are in the middle of writing a book. What is that, what is that, uh, what kind of endurance does it take? Because you're in the middle of writing a book, whether you write it in three months or three years, 
you're, you're probably like probably getting less sleep, perhaps mm-hmm. probably taking less showers, perhaps as an artist, right? You're an artist. Mm-hmm. What is that like when um, people are telling you, you you're there, but you're over here still like working on yourself? Admittedly, you know. Well, I mean, it's really nice for even to think about myself as an artist. That was sweet. Thank you. I, I don't tend to think about myself that way, but I, I, I suppose that I am. <laughs> Maybe the word. Um, are you? Um, you might be talking about self care. I, I, I hear a few threads in there. What's the What's the challenge of um, being perceived as successful, no matter what stage you are, but also having to like create something that you want to be proud of and you want to have oh. a big impact on society. It's um, really, really scary. Like you, you I mean, I, I just had this fear. Like you're gonna now make a fool of yourself in front of the whole wide world because you're gonna put this book out, and then what if it's bad? And so there's there's a lot of anxiety. Um, it kicks up all, all your insecurities for sure. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure I'm answering that, but I definitely struggled with that. I still um, I do not read comments ever. Mm. <laughs> And that's usually because they're very ugly and troll-like and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but I'm trying to brace myself for my first bad review of the book, mm-hmm. right? And not letting that um, sink me to a way where I give up. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I did get a starred review from Publishers Weekly. <laughs> and that was like, oh my God. I can't, it was like this huge thing just lifted up. Like, oh my God, okay, I'm not going to make a fool of myself in front of the whole wide world. Um, I, I, again, I don't know if I'm answering your question. You might want to edit this part, but. No, I mean that, yeah, it's just like, I guess. And then what, was there any other, you brought up scariness, you know, being scared. Like, was there a fear of finishing? Like, or worrying? No, I had that over my dissertation, but. (laughs) Did you you worry? Did you worry? I mean, it seems like you write fast, but when you finished, like, how did you decide that you were done? With the book. Well, they give you a deadline and all that. <laughs> I'm working with an editor who who kind of either says do more here yeah. mm-hmm. or or don't do more here. So 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 all of that kind of shapes shapes you. And that relationship has been a very positive experience. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I read these books and they have like pages of acknowledging their editor was incredible and and you know I I loved working with her. Um, I've never met her. <laughs> um, and she was easy to work with, but uh-huh. I didn't kind of have this deep bond. She wasn't this, you know, I would write a piece and then she would give comments and feedback. Occasionally we get on the phone and talk through something. Well, um, I, I would definitely freeze, right? Like I'll look at, I'll look at it and just, you know, you know, that feeling where you're just stuck and you, and you procrastinate and you, you can't do it. And then I just tell myself, just start writing the way you would say it. Don't try to craft every sentence that's coming out. Yeah. Just just dump it. Just like, imagine you're in front of a group of people and you're explaining this and just do it. Because I speak this all the time. And if it, Some people like Resma, he records. Yeah, he told me. Yeah. And that's yeah. really cool. And if you're um, willing to accept the term artist, what is one of your rituals that you love? Coffee. <laughs> I, I Seriously, I write the best in the morning. I actually feel a little bit like possessive about this. I don't want anybody talking to me in the morning before. Like I, I, I'll go make that hot cup of coffee and I put it in one of those thermos so it stays hot. And then I just sit in front of the computer and while I have that coffee, I write. Mm-hmm. And then they'll will lose that after a couple hours, right? But that that initial mm-hmm. piece is really nice. Once I get on a roll, I'll get obsessed and then I'll, I'll I can't stop. 
and I don't want to go to bed. I just want to keep picking and picking and refining. But that's once I get over that hump. Mm-hmm. Now, my editor asked me to write um, an op-ed for the New York Times in a way to kind of promote the book. And I am not good with that kind of like, you've got you know a week to write an op-ed about some timely issue. I'm in awe of people that like the the NFL comes up with this penalty and the next day this brilliant op-ed comes out. Yeah. Like I'm in awe of people that can write like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not that fast. <laughs> um, what was the hardest, maybe process or even section or part of the book to write? I, d- I don't like the what do I do, and you kind of have to, right? You mm. you have to always, okay, don't forget that chapter. Where do we go from here? You have to do it in, in every article. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I, um, it, it isn't that there aren't strategies, but I think that people want some kind of answer. And I, I, I'm a firm believer that the more complexity I can see in the racial mm-hmm. com- uh, order and construct, the more complex my responses will be. And if I truly internalize this framework, I will have some skills that are that are more intuitive. Um, and, and there isn't some easy kind of, I think white people just want, give me the answer. And they want it to be something like, don't make eye contact with this kind of person and only shake with the left hand with this kind. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be just so great? But, but humility, mm-hmm. um, repair, listening, believing, bearing witness, like those are like, they're not even permeable in a way, right? You can't even get your hands on them. And so mm-hmm. it's hard to, to articulate, like be fundamentally transformed, right? In, in a chapter. In your Q and A's, is it liberating to be able to say, I don't know to a question? It's really um, wonderful what credibility will grant you. And I don't know if it's age, coupled with credibility but now i'm really comfortable just saying yeah i haven't thought a lot about that question i don't know and i used to feel like you always you got to come up with something really smart but i don't you know there are some aspects of somebody recently asked me what's the difference between appreciation and appropriation like and i've gotten that question before and i'll be honest i haven't thought really deeply about it a lot of people use that credibility to come up with a bullshit answer though and you choose not to (laughs) Well, we well I'm feeling more <laughs> confident that. to just say, yeah, I haven't done a lot of thinking about that, but so many people have. Look it up. Yes. Right? Um, the other chapter that was a risk for me mm. is anti-blackness. Mm. I have a chapter called anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. And I used to be very careful to avoid the black-white hierarchy, right? You get a, You get a lot of, I've gotten a lot of, you know, feedback over the years like you this is all about black and white and you're in free enforcing so you'll be really careful to be inclusive of everybody but after 20 years of doing this there's nothing like Mm anti-blackness and that for white people i firmly believe black people are the ultimate racial other and nothing turns our cranks like Mm -hmm. black people and that there are bookends and there's white on one end and black on the other and then where other groups get positioned have a lot to do with how close they are to one or the other. And that does not mean that the people positioned between black and white don't experience racism. They do. They experience it differently. And what I've internalized, for example, about Asian heritage people, it's racist. 
but it's different than what I've internalized about African heritage people. And for me as a white person working to gain racial literacy, I have to understand all of that. But, but there, there are two ends of the continuum. And I just feel braver, if you will, about taking on people's critique that don't want you to do that and just saying, we got to talk about anti-blackness. Because what's colorism about but anti-blackness, right? Um, what is the model minority about except anti-blackness, right? Um, I think there's a really hard question that other groups that aren't black of color have to ask themselves. Who have I aligned with? Have I aligned with white people or have I aligned with black people? And if I've aligned with white people, how have I been rewarded for that? Hmm. White people are more comfortable with Asian people. We're not going to let them lead, <laughs> but we're going to let them get closer to us. We're going to reward them for the racist pattern, the, when I say racist, for the stereotypes we have about them. Except for Harvard. You heard what they just did. Oh, no, actually. Oh, yeah. they just, they've been like poorly rating their um, application statuses based on personality, saying that they don't have much personality, so they're knocking them in their... Harvard applications, people of Asian heritage. Right. I mean, <sighs> I mean, they're, again, they're experiencing racism. Yeah. Um, but to, even to the degree that still, you're going to see more Asian people in the workplace, in the right, because mm -hmm. um, we perceive them as either closer to whiteness or more comfortable for white people. So anyway, just coming out and, and knowing that I'm risking a critique. You know, my critiques from white people, I expect critiques from people of color are harder. Yeah. Right. And one of the ways, maybe this is part of like, how do I handle putting something out there on, on a subject as charged as race right. and knowing that I will get critiques from the left as well as the right, um, is just getting really clear that I cannot possibly get this right by everybody. No. That's not going to be possible. I'm going to get a, as right as I can by as many people as I can. <laughs> but just accept you won't get it right by everybody. I want to say something about the, the the far left can be as vicious as the far right. Man, 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 lefties, like, I dread giving talks in Portland, Oregon. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they just wait. They, they are them. just going to leap on you. Oh, you did not do your gender pronouns. And you're just going to get, oh, you did not. Oh, you did. And they just wait and they just leap. And then they vilify and they invalidate. And, and it's, uh, there's a difference between kind of getting called in and getting vilified and fundamentally dismissed. Um, and I think we, um, we tear apart white people who, who take a stand. Mm -hmm. um, and who, it, it, I do not ever want to um, put, my, put, put it with the risk that people of color take. But yeah, it ain't easy, mm -hmm. right? You, you definitely can just brace yourself for some pretty deep critique if you're gonna stand up on racism. And it's, isn't it like a little bit, you know, so from, on the right, you just basically have straight up trolling, right? But on the left, you have, you know, we could call it concern trolling. Yeah, I think- And you could take yeah. out the CERN, it's just controlling. Well, it also um, keeps, white people from looking at themselves. So so I'll have yes. a white person come up and just read yes. me the riot act uh -huh. and I'll think, okay, you know, yep, um, you think that I did not 
uh, do justice to indigenous peoples, but can you please tell me one, what did you get from my talk about what it means to be white? How do you think your whiteness might be manifesting right now? But that, but that allows them not to go there. They're going to be an advocate for the people that, that they didn't think were done justice. Um, I, will, I talk about colorblind racism, mm -hmm. and the only people who've ever said, don't use colorblind, that's ableist, are sighted people. Okay, I have, I have asked, I've just asked people who are blind if the term colorblind is problematic or blind spots, and they say, like, no, we, I know what you're talking about. So it's this kind of, on the behalf of this person, I'm going to advocate. Mm. And it's, okay, again, you know, I may suppose I'm advocating on behalf of people of color. Um, but are you using that to grapple with your own whiteness? Or, and that, it comes back to the question again and again, how is it functioning? How is it functioning for you as a white person when you do that? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it might be functioning in a really important way, like we need to advocate for people who, who aren't present right here. But, but other times it's functioning to be self-righteous, to be out-woke, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I think a, a huge part of that, too, is to, if, if you made one mistake, then I don't need to listen to you, right? Well, that's the other thing, right? You get dismissed out of hand, and then everything else you said can be invalidated which the which a whole thing has been when i do make a mistake how do i take that how do i how do i learn from that it's not the, i'm you know as you've said we're going to make mistakes that's that's the continuum that we're always kind of navigating and that's the difference you say did you say oh but are you asking this question based on how you're thinking about your white fragility either they're doing that or the, it's a defense the, mechanism. The, the, the bad thing if they're thinking about their white fragility, that's one thing. But what a lot of people aren't doing when I say concern trolling is yeah. if they're doing that concern trolling, Robin, if you were black, white, brown, saying the same stuff, they nitpick them just the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's I don't where do you think that's getting us? Is it, you know, be it social media spurring that along or. Well, there, there's a there's a moment of righteousness in it and righteousness mm -hmm. feels better than guilt or or shame or having to own privilege, you know, and if I'm being honest, even when sometimes I, I, I'm pretty good at laying it out and I lay it out really good and I feel a little feeling of righteousness, yeah. right? And that's a good feeling. Um, and so I think that's what it gives us. And, and it also, of course, allows us not to have to grapple with our own in those moments, right? Does that's it, my it, best guess. Does it freak you out about where we're at as society? Um, the conversations that we're stymieing, like, okay, we could have we could have really come together on this conversation in December of 2017, and here we are in June of 2018, a few months from an election, and we're still talking about this, but we're not. Mm -hmm. I'm really clear that um, racism will not end in my lifetime, yeah. and I'm not even sure, honestly, that it will ever end. Um, but to my last breath, I certainly hope to play my part in ameliorating it, minimizing it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as I just said in that room, you know, um, I, I do, as a result of decades of this work, not only can some people of color count me, count on me, mm -hmm. um, but I know I do less harm. Mm. I run less racism. I'm not defensive when I comes to my attention in some way or the other, and I have very good repair skills.
A. Mm. Um, and how important is that? Oh my God. Repair skills. Can yes. you talk more about so, that? Oh, please. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, notice I say I do less harm. That doesn't mean I do harm. I know I do. Um, but less harm can actually mean one more hour on your life, Tommy. You may actually live one hour longer because you didn't have to take it home and agonize about whether it was worth it to talk to me or not, or should you just suck it up one more time? Because you know, black people in particular die earlier from stress-related diseases. So my nonsense is killing you. It, mm -hmm. It's a slow death. It's not a, it's not executed by a cop, right? And, and so less harm is no small thing, right? Um, and so while it might not end, it's not going to end in my lifetime and it might not ever end, I, I, I certainly want to be less rather than more. And I have had countless people of color say to me, we know you're going to run your racism, right? We're not, we're not expecting you not to. And um, we're not going to give up on you when you do if what happens next is repair, right? Where can I go with you in those moments when it slips out of you, right? Uh, can I talk to you about it? Can we repair it? And that's what you're looking for generally, and that's what's going to build trust. Um, I gave an example earlier in that workshop. Is I was drawing from sexism, and you know, imagine talking to a group of men trying to talk mm -hmm. about sexism, and and they're they're meeting me with silence. That's going to feel really hostile. And then one of them says, "Okay, this is so hard for me to acknowledge, but yeah, I have benefited from patriarchy, and I have colluded with patriarchy." Actually, that's the person I now trust. I'm not thinking, oh, there's the asshole in the room. There's the sexist. I already know they're all sexist, right? They're all men. They're all sexist. Uh -huh. That's the one I trust who's willing to meet me halfway, be vulnerable, um, own it, grapple with it. Um, so that, that's how I think about repair. And actually, in my last chapter, have this whole piece on, on repair and how I do it. And a lot of white people have said, oh my God, it's such a helpful model. Because we don't have any models. We don't even know what it looks like. So I start with a pretty egregious uh, moment of racism I ran at, at a coworker in a meeting. And then I just go through all the steps of repair that I took. Mm. And so I will direct your listeners to the book. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think it's critical. Mm -hmm. Maybe the last thing I want to say is even I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable with my use of the word mistake because mm. there's a little bit of an innocence to it. Mm. And sometimes it's a mistake in like, oh, I didn't know that the phrase, um, what's, a, what's a classic, a jip. Like mm. I, I actually didn't know that to say jip you was problematic, right? So, so maybe, maybe we could call that a mistake. But um, there's a kind of innocence to that word. So I just want to be really clear. Mm. Sometimes um, it's, it's not a mistake. It's me running my racism. It's my superiority and racist biases coming out in my interactions. Mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to call the woman who, let's use the woman who called uh, cops at Starbucks right, as an example. I'm not calling that a mistake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm calling that an act, whether, whether it was conscious or not, rooted in racist bias.
So just anyway, I just wanted to differentiate. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. When is this work the most fun for you? Oh, that's a great question. And I, I know there's an answer to it. I just have this pause for a second. Um, it's the most rewarding and fulfilling when white people uh, are making connections and having insights and they're deepening my analysis. Um, and that's exceptional. Um, but when it happens, when there's that kind of like synergy and, and, and we're building on, on each other, that's really cool. The other, of course, is when people of color feel affirmed and validated in their experience. And I have had people of color come up to me and say, I've never in my life heard a white person admit to these things. And I can't tell you what that's like. And that for just these two hours, these three hours, I did not have to carry it. You carried it, right? and you held the white people and you pushed the white people. And um, that's incredibly rewarding. You know, it, it's also hard, in order to get white people out of denial, I have to, when we are in deep denial, I, I have to kind of overwhelm them with it. I have to push their faces in it, make it undeniable. But in doing that, I'm pushing the people of color's faces in it that are in the room. And a lot of people of color I would imagine, get through the day not looking directly at white supremacy. Because if you just look directly at it constantly, I think it'd be hard to get through the day, right? You can't almost notice every moment of it. But there you are, and you're getting a concentrated dose for like three hours, right, in order to wake the white people up and make it undeniable. So that can be a little bit hard. And I often, if, if there are just a few people I call in the room, I'll check in with them first and kind of tell them, gird yourself and know what's coming and I'm not going to ever call on you. And mm -hmm. But mostly the overwhelming feedback from people of color is, is feeling heard and seen and validated. So that's really, really rewarding. It's fun. I like um, making fun. Oh, white. <laughs> <laughs> I like making fun. Do you savor fun. it? What? Do you savor it? No, well, savor makes it sound. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I like to mock it a little bit. It's so st stupid. I mean, <laughs> this the stuff we say is ridiculous. And I, it's like, come on, you guys, look at this. And I try to do it, I hope, with some kind of compassion and not, not with arrogance. Mm -hmm. um, but I do... I really get people to laugh. Sometimes I feel like a comedian up there. I mean, white people are really laughing um, because you, it, it, pardon? Can you sense the difference of tone of types of laughter? Yeah. I like mean, uncomfortable laughter versus yeah, I think what's happening is like, oh my God, I totally recognize myself. Oh my God, I've said that same thing, but I didn't just say it now. So there's that relief. It's not me on the hot uh -huh. seat. But now I really realize, yeah, it is kind of silly. Mm. And so, and then the laughter helps release tension mm -hmm. because these are very, oh, white people tend to walk in the room really scared. They, they think they're going to get called out or attacked or mm -hmm. shamed, all the stuff. And so there, there's tension. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they laugh, it helps release it. And then they open up again and they can take in more information. Artist. Oh, thank you. I wish you could have come today and then watched uh, how, how I kind of, Unfold it. Too. Um, there are videos. How, how do you balance cynicism and hope? 
Oh, it's really hard. Um, if, if I'm going to be really honest, I don't feel very hopeful. Um, I, about, I don't think white people, for the most part, care. I think we are profoundly apathetic about racism. And if you show us a video of somebody being beaten, we will be upset. But moving through our, our daily lives, I mean, I think, I think segregation and white flight allows police brutality to happen because it keeps you out of our neighborhoods. And I can't see what's going on, so I don't have to feel bad about it, but that state violence keeps my equity high, keeps my schools better, my kids don't have to compete with you. I mean, I think um, I think there's a lot about it we are invested in. And so, no, I don't feel really hopeful some days. But hope is political mm. because it drives behaviors, right? And so as a white person, when I feel hopeless, and I do, <laughs> then I have to ask myself, well, how is it functioning? Go ahead, give up. And then the whole system will stay the way it is and your position in it will be protected. You gotta look in the mirror and, and say Yep, oh. and then I'm like, damn it, I don't get to go here, right? Now, if hope is functioning like Pollyanna, oh, things are getting so much better, well, that's problematic because that's functioning as a form of denial. Mm -hmm. So we're back to the question that never fails me, how does it function? Hope and hopelessness for people of color is a whole other conversation. I'm not speaking to that. I'm speaking very specifically. As a white person, I cannot succumb to hopelessness because it serves white supremacy. Uh, what are you tired of hearing? God, I love that question. Um, well, I'm only pausing because I say a lot what I'm tired of hearing, but that doesn't mean the, the listeners would have heard it. So I'm tired of hearing that it's focusing on race that divides us. I'm tired of hearing um, they're just as racist as we are. I'm tired of hearing um, I marched in the 60s. I'm tired of white men mansplaining and correcting my analysis when they've never thought about it. I'm tired of white people who live in segregated neighborhoods being so certain that they're not racist. I'm tired of white people invoking all the people of color that are in proximity to them as evidence of their lack of racism. I just, okay, let me think. Oh, there's this thing that just came in the paper that made me so angry that I was, you know, you just have to, is this really racist picture that got published? And then um, I'm tired of people interviewing other people about whether they think something is or isn't racist, right? Mm. Is it putting it up for debate, mm -hmm. right? Mm. And then of course, if the person is nice, it couldn't be racist, right? I mean, did you ever just wonder what the hell qualifies as racism in the white mind? Does anything qualify as racism in the white mind? Doesn't look like it. <laughs> you know, some public official can say Michelle Obama looks like something in high heels and then insist that she's not racist, right? Like what in the hell do you think racism is, right? What's something you want to tell the listeners? 
that the question is not if, but how. So what I, I want to tell your white listeners, the way you can use individualism, because this is a very precious ideology for white people, and that when we hear about racism, we tend to focus on all the ways we see ourselves as an exemption. Use it to figure out how you got socialized into the overall structure, because nothing could and nothing did exempt you from the system you're in. It's a system, not an event, right? What I want to say to people of color is on behalf of white people, I apologize to you. You are not crazy. It is us, not you. And I guess I want you to know that until the end of my life, I will not be silent. I will have moments of silence. Uh, but I will keep trying to push myself through it. And at least here's one white person who, to the best of my ability, will use my position. What art is currently giving you life and energy to keep you going? Working today with Resma was a real high. I mean, he's something else. Uh, he's got a, a take that's really, really different mm -hmm. and really powerful. And to see that the way he does it and the way I do it actually fit beautifully while being really different uh, pieces of the puzzle, but both really, really necessary. So it's getting to have the honor of being in conversations with people like, like Resma mm. um, and having that deepen my analysis. And um, mm. it, it's, it's actually the, what is it? The reward of 20 plus years of, of doing this work and finally, like having people kind of listen and take it seriously, right? It's it's gaining that credibility. That doesn't mean that, you know. Anyway, so I'll just stop there. I didn't like that part very much. But it can, <laughs> it can sustain you daily, that uh, reward of those fruits of 20 years. Yeah, you know, when it's it's the emails that I get. It's the people that came, come up to me and just say, reading that article transformed me. Mm. Mm -hmm. that article in that moment like I got it I saw something right when I hear that from white people or when a person of color just says I love your work <laughs> I give your work to all my white co-workers right that is just you know inexpressibly um, mm -hmm. rewarding and heartening and validating I was raised Catholic yep. and I pretty much rejected that at about age 12 <laughs> But there is, there's a framework that I just have to think I got from Catholicism, and that is my life must have purpose and it must be purpose towards justice. I do not believe in an afterlife, um, but I have a very, very short and precious time on this earth, and I want to contribute to justice, not injustice. Right? And to the degree that I can say that I'm doing that, you know, somebody. You know, they call you a social justice warrior, and I think well, you should have come up with something a little more offensive than that, because if, <laughs> if my tombstone should say social justice warrior, <laughs> I led a good life. Pretty sound, sounds pretty great. Isn't it? Yeah. SJWs. <laughs> Self-righteous uh, asshole. asshole. Okay, well, that's not good. <laughs> the book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People, I got to start over because I just wanted to say the subtitle in a different tone. <laughs> I got to be professional. 
The book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, is out now. You can go to the website, robindangelo.com, to find links to purchase the book. There will be plenty of indie outlets for you to buy that book. Support if it's in your hometown. Do what you can. Order the book. Share it with your friends. And uh, show Robin some love, because this work needs to spread, and it needs to spread now. Thank you, Robin D'Angelo, Dr. Thank Robin so D'Angelo, <laughs> for joining us. Oh, it yeah. was just a, an honor and a joy. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you, Robin D'Angelo. Thank you so much. She had just gotten done leading a two-day intensive workshop, uh, and she stepped right off the stage and talked to us for two hours about... That was uh, amazing. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for just being gung-ho the whole time and... Uh, given it 110%. That was an amazing interview. So thank you so much, Robin. Yeah, we're forever grateful. And uh, if you want to keep up with what we're doing, and if you don't want to miss an episode, if you, you are an Apple user, please, 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 please subscribe to Weapon of Choice Podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts on your phone app. And if you love the show, go on and give us that five stars. You know you want to. You know on. it only takes 30 seconds. If you want to review us, which we really could use because that helps us grow helps us put us out there helps our reach give us that review after you give us five stars that only take you a minute or two and i promise you you won't regret it and i promise you we'll love you forever we love you for That's listening right. but we'll love you to infinity we could use your support anyway you got it also on social media you know where to find us on instagram it's at weapon of choice podcast facebook is at weapon of choice podcast like that page for all the updates and you can always hit us up on Twitter at Weapon Choice Pod. Also, if you want to email us and send us a nice love note, it's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. And listen, we always want to hear from you. We want to hear what artists you want us to get on the show. And we want to hear what art you're taking in that's recharging you, that's keeping you going. This is, this is how we connect. This is how... Uh, this is how we all come together. I want to hear about new new stuff. I want to hear about new art that's great out there. Um, so let us know. Write to that email. Tell us how you're doing. And as always, you know we're going to take you out to some hot music. And the music we provide is always, more often than not, a local artist, if not all the time, out of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And they really speak to these real issues. And we've been blessed with a compilation album called Dismembered and Unarmed right out of here, the Twin Cities. And we're going to hit you with yet another song off that perfect, perfect hip-hop compilation album. This one's called Colors, featuring so many dope artists, some of which are Bailey26 and Brother Ali. We can't wait, we can't wait for you to rock to this. Let's go. Here it is. Petrified, the trauma goes deep beyond the microscope. I think before I tried to spoke, the ego died to find my soul. Culture lands, vultures pick the guts and run with it. Leave the bones and paint the pig. Get off on your psychosis. Oh, 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 oh,
that H in the face. Popping AKs at the range. Mom go to work in the cage. We already know ain't shit gon' change. Can't sell hope. Money hoes dope. Generation broke, bro. How you gon' cope? Mama on choco, daddy on yoke. Send him to Iraq, came back with a scope. Uh, Papa had H in his face. Popping AKs at the range. Mom go to work in the cage. We already know ain't shit gon' change. Can't sell hope. Money hoes dope. Generation broke, bro. How you gon' cope? Mama on choco, daddy on yoke. Send him to Iraq, came back with a scope. Uh, Uncle Sam said, don't feel, don't think. Hearts turn cold, still ghost clink. Put glitter on shit, it still gon' stink. I ain't nothing like a pig, we just both pink. Uncle was a vet, blowing high tech. Hundred out in debt, tryna forget. Rolling on a quarter like a minute quartet. Nike Cortez through his frontal cortex. Trauma with a T, got a response of three. Fighter, flighter, freeze. Ignite, dynamite, I leave. Slip, slide up in the breeze. With the mind short circuit and the nerves just seize. These are the wounds that don't heal. Remember like a dream, even though they're so real. When the fighting ain't polite and there's no one left to outrun. 5-0, say freeze and you got numb. If I kill, 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 I get my soul back. Life's cheap now, big slash, roll back. Didn't always cause white, did you know that? Wonder why we left home and can I go back? Why do Irish people drink a lot? As I walk into the liquor spot. Heard I'm German, didn't know my pops. All my homies got molested, didn't know about that, did you? It's regular in our city. Like it's our fault, our culture's at the Walmart. Across seas, it was there, it got tore apart. You pour a piss on our leg like it's art, nah. Traumatized from the shit our grandfather saw. Like a lot of y'all, I'm protective and vulnerable. I know every move you could ever do. It's passed down to me, I pass it down to you. Why they call you white when you colorful? We got colonized. My ancestors' thoughts was not mine. I know this land's not mine. Fuck them textbooks they sold to you. I don't want to take your soul from you. If I kill, kill, then I get my soul back. Life's cheap now, big slash, roll back. Didn't always cause white, did you know that? Wonder why we left home and can I go back? White supremacy is the context. It's a nuanced problem, shit's complex. In the suburbs, in the section, they complex. Middle school cleared out with a bomb threat. Pow, pow, never knew about the Dow. You don't want to die, then you better bow down. Yeah, nobody, yeah, been around town. We ain't fucking with the government when it go down. Grandpa, where were you when they were burning churches? Grandma, what about the babies in the service? Father, why you so silent in your sermons? Are you all too nervous to consider what the curse is? Granddad cut his wrists in the bathtub. Papa hit a bottle till his car crashed up. Not even the mirror is a safe place. Trying to save face while I'm tearing his mask up. Papa had H in his face. Popping AKs at the range. Mom go to work in the cage. We already know ain't shit gon' change. Can't sell hope. Money hoes dope. Generation broke, bro. How you gon' cope? Mama on choco, daddy on yoke. Send him to Iraq, came back with a scope. Generation broke, bro, how you gon' cope? Mama on choco, daddy on yo. Send him to a rack, came back with a scope. Oh.